Petty. Right, well, thank you uh, very much indeed, Mike, uh, for those kind words. Um, and I'd like to begin by uh, thanking you all for coming along this evening uh, and thank the people who've been involved in uh, creating this um, amazing um, mirage you see behind me. In particular, I'd like to thank Matt Fancy, uh, Laura Irving, Alex Wilcox, Jonathan Beale, um, and of course, Mike, uh, for, those, for those kind words. I'd also like to thank uh, Julia Taylor for very kindly lending us uh, some of her lovely old radio sets, including this, I think it's a 1948 Echo I see uh, on my left. So <clears throat> my aim this evening is to present the case for radio drama, and in particular in the period 1945 to 1963, and to present that as, cultural, as part of our cultural heritage worthy of preservation, appreciation, and access. The other thing I want to do, or one of the other things I want to do, is to place radio drama in its cultural context and suggest how radio dramas in the 1950s reflected the culture of the time and, as a result, can be interpreted. I'm also going to say something about archive policy. I'll be playing... Um, nine short pieces of uh, radio. When I was uh, writing this lecture, one of the things that I thought was it's slightly disappointing that my, my research doesn't seem to have much significance or relevance to people's lives today. I mean, after all, who's interested these days in Cold War culture? <laughs> then, <clears throat> on the 4th of March, Russian agents use nerve gas on the streets of Salisbury. So maybe my talk will be slightly more relevant than I had thought. To begin with, we need to go on something uh, of a journey, back to the 1940s and the 1950s. But we do have a rather romantic view of the past, greatly encouraged, of course, by films like His Finest Hour and Dunkirk. And Vince Cable, in a recent speech, said that people who voted for Brexit were nostalgic for a Britain where faces are white, passports are blue, and the map of the world is coloured in pink by the British Empire. But I think that the main feature of life in the 1950s, which can help us to understand the radio drama of the time, is the Cold War. That constant threat of nuclear war and the anxiety uh, that it created. In the, early, in the 1940s, after the Second World War, the novelist Iris Murdoch arrived from South Africa, from the colour and sunshine of South Africa, and described London as unpainted, stained, cracked, dull and war-damaged, characterised by ruins, cellars and dark fogs. So, you must imagine that you are somewhere not very warm, rather dark, and a little bit shabby. <laughs> not unlike the Shelley Theatre itself. <clears throat> but the war is over. It's 1945. So, let's put the radio on. This is the BBC Home Service. 
We present The Atom Explodes, the story of research into radioactivity, from its discovery by Deverell at the end of the last century, up to its newest development, the atomic bomb. Cigarette, man? Thank you, John. Charles. Mm, no, thanks. Light? Oh, yes. I don't try to match. I'm radioactive. You're what? Radioactive. I took a pill from the last year. I'm sorry to be dense, but I have the slightest idea what you're talking about. Well, the pill was radioactive, you see. A friend of mine's doctor, one of these research groups, quite nice chap always, the only thing is he's always quite suggesting I might like to be infected with this or that. I've been quite firm up till now, but this time it was only a question of taking a pill or the one of you were the other ones always, and I don't want to tell you. But didn't you ask what it was first? Of course I did, it was phosphorus, made with the bones and all that. So you will see from uh, your list that <clears throat> that was The Atom Explodes, written and produced by Nesta Payne. We'll hear two examples of her work on, a, on 9.45 on a Wednesday evening, 15th of August 1945, on the home service. Don't worry too much about the other remark, not accessible. I'm not going to be telling you, uh, when we hear these extracts, what they mean or what they signify, but I am just going to say one or two little things to, uh, you know, to, uh, things for you to think about at least. And I think that that extract is truly bizarre. It really is radio from a completely other world. You have to bear in mind that it was broadcast nine days after the bombing of Hiroshima. And the subject of nuclear energy, nuclear power, uh, was expressed through the medium of a conversation at a cocktail party. But at the same time, there is something about it which seems to work, because this is an attempt to uh, broadcast ideas about science in a rather original and imaginative way. But my main research interest is radio drama, so let's move on to that. And one of the most interesting post-war radio dramatists, was a man called Giles Cooper. He was a prolific writer of, of radio dramas, um, slightly over 40, uh, in fact, that he wrote for, for the BBC. And his work is, is now largely forgotten. The example that we're going to listen to uh, today um, is, as you'll see from the list, is The Disagreeable Oyster, now, the main character in The Disagreeable Oyster is somebody called Bundy. And Bundy has been given £35 to go from the head office of his firm, Craddock's Calculators, to Leicester to sort out a little local problem. But before he goes, Bundy must phone home. That's my telephone on the table in my hall. I can hear the sunlight sending a shaft down from the landing window. I can hear the carpet breathing dust. Hello, who's that? My husband's out. Alice, it's me. It's Murr. Is something wrong? No, no, but I've got to go away for the night for the firm. It's an emergency. For the night? Yes, and I've got to buy a toothbrush and a pair of pyjamas. I'll wear my Macintosh as a dressing gown. Oh. Oh, I know, darling, but it can't be helped. It's an emergency. I'll be back tomorrow morning. Don't forget to put the chain on the door. But who will get the coal? And who will empty the rubbish from the kitchen? I will, Alice. I will. Tomorrow. And bread. I want a wrapped loaf and a shop to shop. I'll get some in Stoddy's Hunt. 
But now I must catch the train. Goodbye, Alice. Look after yourself. Goodbye. I haven't travelled from Euston for years. It's all so different from what I'm accustomed to. I've got 34 pounds. This is a stern and serious train. 34 pounds. It won't reach the sea in 60 miles. 34 pounds. These suburbs, too. 34 pounds. They can't fool me because all the houses look like mine. 34 pounds. Oh, no, these are northerly suburbs. 34 pounds. Eskimo land. 34 pounds. Take this compartment. 34 pounds. Only three a side. 34 pounds. Not what I'm used to at all. 34 pounds. Panelled in rare empire wood. Thirty-four pounds. Well, well. Thirty-four pounds, five and sixpence. Change at left on. This is it, this is it, this is it. Some bungalows, a timber yard. Now, would that be a mill? This is it. A monstrous row of kilns. Now, one of the interesting things about Giles Cooper's writing, and we're going to find that in, in a number of these clips, is that the drama is inside the head of the main character. So, Giles Cooper has tried to help us to see the world through Bundy's eyes. And another thing which I think is really important about Cooper is his interesting use of sound. So, the phone ringing, the station announcements, the trains. And he talks about what he can hear, including, I can hear the carpet, I can hear the sunshine. It's also a reflection on social class, of course, and a very stereotypical view of, of the middle class. And I think also, and this is true of almost all of Giles Cooper's work, it's a reflection on marriage and in Cooper's plays, all relationships go wrong. And now, a bit of a treat, Samuel Beckett. One of the greatest literary figures of the last century, of course. But Beckett posed the BBC a particular problem. After the success of Waiting for Godot in 1953 in Paris, he became a very famous and important cultural figure. But his writing was blasphemous and largely unintelligible. However, a group of two or three young producers at the BBC persuaded him to write uh, a drama for, for the BBC, a radio drama for the BBC. And the third extract which we're going to hear is uh, is all that fall.
Despite the obvious humour of uh, Beckett's writing for radio, um, the play is also characterised by great tragedy and horror. It's, it's, uh, the main part of the story it concerns the death of a child. A child has fallen from the train, probably thrown there uh, by Dan himself. And so the listener is forced to encounter both humour um, and wordplay, and also something deeply tragic and, and horrific, a typical uh, Beckett device. Now we come to Harold Pinter. The Pinter story in relation to BBC radio drama is, uh, is fascinating. Um, and I think we're, we're very fortunate tonight uh, to be able to listen to something which is a, has been completely unobtainable, and that is the first Harold Pinter uh, play written for radio, A Slight Ache. Um, Pinter was, of course, another great literary figure of the 20th century, <clears throat> but not in 1959, because his stage play, The Birthday Party, had been a complete disaster on the London stage. Despite that, uh, the BBC, to its great credit, commissioned um, Pinter to write three radio dramas. And the first of these, um, A Slight Ache, um, I think without further ado we will listen to the beginning. Have you noticed the honeysuckle this morning? Hmm? The what? The honeysuckle. Honeysuckle? Where? By the back gate, Edward. Was that honeysuckle? I thought it was convolvulus or something. But you know it's honeysuckle. I tell you, I thought it was convolvulus. It's a wonderful flower. I must look. The whole garden's in flower this morning. Clematis, convolvulus, everything. I was out at seven. I stood by the pool. Did you say that the convolvulus was in flower? Yes. But good God, you just denied there was any. I was talking about the honeysuckle. About the... Edward, you know that shrub outside the tool shed? Yes, yes. That's convolvulus. That? Yes. Oh. I thought it was japonica. So <clears throat> here is this rather nightmarish middle-class couple sitting in the garden arguing about the, the names for uh, different plants. And <clears throat> perhaps one of the reasons for this is because of the, the great interest people like Pinter and Beckett in the failure of language to communicate. And that was a particular theme, uh, theme for Beckett as it, as it is for, um, uh, for Pinter. So this argument about japonica and convolvulus. And then they go on to talk about Edward, the man, disagrees with the use 
of the word bite to describe what a wasp does, preferring the word sting, and so there is an argument about that. Now, before we listen to the next extract, I have to explain that the play is about the couple, this arguing couple, and the blind match seller, Barnabas, who is standing outside their house, failing to sell matches. Barnabas never speaks. He's silent throughout the whole uh, play. Eventually, Barnabas undermines, <clears throat> undermines Edward and, in fact, replaces him. So let's hear the next extract. Pool must be glistening in the moonlight. In the lawn, I, I remember it well. Cliff, sea, the three masts. Barnabas, everything is ready. I want to show you my garden, your garden. You must see my japonica, my convolvulus, my honeysuckle, my clematis. The summer is coming. I put out your canopy for you. You can lunch in the garden by the pool. Polish the whole house for you. Take my hand. Yes. 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 Oh, wait a moment. Edward. Here is your tray. So, Edward, here is your tray with the matches on so that you can stand outside and, uh, and sell them. <coughs> I'd just like to spend a moment talking about what we've just heard because I think it is possible to interpret this very much as a Cold War drama. What Pinter is saying, as he says in some of his other work as well, is that our lives can be destroyed at any moment. And... Harold Hobson picked this up, the great uh, critic, uh, when he reviewed uh, Pinter's stage play, The Birthday Party. Hobson wrote, We live on the verge of disaster. One sunny afternoon, a hydrogen bomb may explode, and there is something in your past which will catch up with you. That's a slightly abbreviated version of what he had to say, but you get the point. So Edward's life his stable life with his wife, is being destroyed by the presence of this unknown man, Barnabas. But at the same time, <clears throat> and this is a trick, really, of radio drama, we don't know whether Barnabas really exists because we can't see anything. Is Barnabas real or is he just a figment of their imagination? So it's a truly radiogenic Play. And any attempt to put it on the stage, I think, would be mistaken. Now, the term theatre of the absurd 
uh, was coined by Martin Eslin and is used to describe the rather bizarre, irrational worlds created by writers like Beckett and Pinter. <clears throat> but it is especially true of the work of the a Romanian writer who also went to live in Paris, Eugene Ionesco. And <clears throat> once again, I think we're very fortunate to be able to listen to um, uh, an otherwise completely unobtainable piece of audio. And that is two extracts from, uh, from Ionesco's Rhinoceros. Slightly pertinent, because I think, am I right in saying the last African white rhino died, or the last male one did uh, this week. <clears throat> so Rhinoceros is an adaptation of a stage play. And uh, let's go from the beginning. Thank you, Alex. This is the BBC Third Programme. We present Oscar Kwitek and Andre Melle, Anthony Jacobs and Dennis Blakelock in Rhinoceros by Eugene Ionesco, translated by Derek Price. Tuck up to buy from us nowadays. <laughs> she goes to the grocers down the street. Have you sold anything yet? No, no one's been in. Oh, what's the use? Doesn't look as if they're going too well over at the cafe either. Those two will be the first they've had this morning. So the, <clears throat> the play begins with uh, this wonderful little portrait of provincial life in, in France <clears throat> with the shopkeepers, uh, the clock, the cat. <clears throat> but in Rhinoceros, everyone turns into a rhinoceros, obviously. And uh, we'll, in the next sequence, which we're going to hear... Um, we're actually going to hear someone go through this process. After all, rhinoceroses are living creatures the same as us. They've got as much right to life as we have. As long as they don't destroy ours in the process, you must admit the difference in mentality. Are you under the impression that our way of life is superior? Well, at any rate, we have our own moral standards, which I consider incompatible with the standards of these animals. Moral standards? I'm sick of moral standards. We need to go beyond moral standards. And what would you put in their place? Nature. Nature? Are you suggesting we replace our moral laws by the law of the jungle? Yes, suit me. Oh, you say that, but deep down We've no one... We've got to build our life on new foundations. We must get back to primeval integrity. I don't agree with you at all. I mean, 
I can't breathe. Well, oh. Look, just think for a moment. You must admit that we have a philosophy that animals don't share and an irreplaceable set of values which has taken centuries of human civilization to build up. When we've demolished all that, we'll be better off. Ah, oh, that's not what you believe fundamentally. I know you too well. You know as well as I do that mankind don't is the Don't talk to me about mankind. I mean the human individual. Sure. Humanism. Humanism is all washed up. Humanism, you're a ridiculous old sentimentalist. I'm amazed to hear you say that, Jean Rhea. You must be out of your mind. You wouldn't like to be a rhinoceros yourself, now would you? Can you speak more clearly? I didn't catch what you said. You swallowed the words. What's wrong with being a rhinoceros? I'm all for change. It's not like you to say a thing like that. Now, <clears throat> I think you, you could present an argument for saying that rhinoceros works particularly well on radio. Because if you can imagine that staged, then uh, it would well, it'd be an extremely difficult thing to do, and there'd be kind of awkward papier-mâché heads of rhinoceroses or something ghastly like that. So I think, it is, I think it is a very radiogenic work. And one of the really uh, demanding things about it is that we are forced to imagine in our own minds what it would look like if somebody did become uh, a rhinoceros. And I think without the visual imagery that you would get if it was, was on the stage or in a film, we have that mental space to wonder what on earth it means. Once again, it could be seen as uh, a Cold War drama, and this is a slightly crude analysis, but maybe the most obvious interpretation is that everybody becoming a rhinoceros is like everybody becoming a communist. Finally, <clears throat> we return to the work of the radio producer, uh, Nesta Payne. And we're going to hear an adaptation of a Ray Bradbury short story. So this is an example of, of science fiction. The world has been destroyed by nuclear war. But there is a house still standing, and it is staffed by talking robots, even though there is no one to talk to. Okay. And now it is bedtime. In the bedrooms, the beds are being warmed by their electric blankets, for the night is cool. Mrs. McClellan, which poem would you like this evening? Since you express no preference, I shall select a poem at random. Sarah Teasdale, as I recall, your favorite. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground, and swallows circling with their shimmering sound, and frogs on the pools singing at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on the low fence wire. And not one will know of the war. Not one will care at last when it is done. 
Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. So, perhaps the most extreme of the Cold War dramas that we've heard, the world after nuclear war. But at the same time, a reminder of how well poetry works <coughs> on radio. So, I'm just going to say a few words for about five minutes or so about archive policy. Because of all the examples I have played, only The Disagreeable Oyster by Giles Cooper is available to buy or listen to legally. If you look at the list of extracts which we have heard tonight, you'll see that I put in, itali in italics whether they are available for people to listen to. And the words not accessible means that they are simply nowhere. There are, however, one or two exceptions, and Giles Cooper's work is, is a good example. Let me just explain why that is. It's because of a collaboration in the Faculty of Media and Communication between the Centre for Media History, of which I'm director, and the Centre for Intellectual Property, and also um, Red Balloon. And together, we managed to identify precisely what the copyright concerns were of Giles Cooper's work and on discovering that really all rights had expired we produced um, uh, a CD box set of some of Giles Cooper's plays and they are available for sale at the knockdown price of £10 uh, when you have your drink after this talk. Can I add though that um, in the case of Beckett, in some ways a much more important radio dramatist than Giles Cooper, that even his work is no longer available. Um, there was a CD box set produced, uh, between, uh, a collaboration between the British Library and the BBC, but it's no longer in production and it is almost impossible to uh, obtain Beckett's plays. Um, all That Fall is available on YouTube. As for Harold Pinter, no, it's completely inaccessible, although there is a recording of, of it, but it's a later uh, recording. Rhinoceros, There Will Come Soft Rains, none of these things are available. So despite the fact I, that I would argue that these are part of our cultural heritage, we are denied access to them. And the reason for this deplorable situation is that the BBC refuses to make historic radio drama available. And I think it is a great shame that, for example, Michael Bakewell's brilliant production of Rhinoceros or Pinter's hugely important A Slight Ache are denied us. And that is why the title of my talk was Archive Warrior because sometimes I think it is necessary to break the rules in order to make good things happen. We are fortunate at Bournemouth University uh, that I think we can have some sort of impact on 
national radio archive policy and the decisions made in organisations like the BBC. The Centre for Media History is 20 years old this October, and the university has, in its collection, held by the library, some important media archives, including the archive of the IBA. We have a thriving BA in history, which emphasises the importance of media and cultural history. So we do have the reputation and we do have the experience to make some noise and make something happen and to fight for this neglected part of our cultural heritage. Thank you very much indeed for listening and I'm happy to answer any questions that people may have. Thank you.